Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. This is 30-second commercial for Max Factor Tiny Tote. A real eye-opener, new from Max Factor. When you're a new band without a proper record deal and the singles you have managed to release have sunk without a trace, you've got to grab whatever job comes your way. In 1973 and 74, the members of Split Ends did everything from recording radio commercials for Max Factor and Suzuki to working in the freezing works, a psychiatric hospital and the post office. Keyboard player Eddie Rayner. Tim and I worked at Herd's Lolly Factory for months while we waited for the much-touted Warner Brothers deal to come through. And we we worked there for months, uh, ringing up the management company every day. Barry, has the deal come? Have they rung up yet? Have they sent the telex? Barry said he was waiting for a telex from them. It became apparent probably after six months that it was just not going to happen. And I think Barry felt a bit bad about that and made an alternative arrangement for us to go overseas pretty much, which was to go to Australia and um, do an exchange deal with Hush band Hush and uh, they were to come to New Zealand and use our roadies in our truck and we were going to go to Australia and use their roadies in their truck but what they didn't realise is that we didn't have any truck or any roadies and they arrived in New Zealand to nothing <laughs> and we arrived to Australia to their truck and their roadies which was great. Manager Barry Coburn appointed ex-Ray Columbus and the Invaders guitarist Dave Russell to look after the band while they were in Australia. They arrived in Sydney on the 13th of March 1975. We were sort of, you know, squashed into this sort of motel with a half dozen extra beds in the room, and we like we had two rooms between eleven of us or something, and it was it was pretty tight. He sleeps on regardless. He's very good. a beauty last night. You have a beauty. a beauty. It's completely dark. I can't see a thing. <laughs> I just didn't deserve it. In the middle of the night, you know, it's pitch black. Oh, I can't see a thing. Oh, I had a We really had no money. We could, couldn't afford anything. Split Ends drummer, Paul Crowther. We were living on sliced bread, which is probably a bit of a luxury. It was sliced. And cottage cheese and jam. You go past the shop to your nice cake. We couldn't afford to buy it. Oh, one thing for Australia is got good cheesecake. And things like... Uh, hot chocolates and cappuccinos you just don't see in New Zealand. Is there money on your wall? It was very hard. Barry Coburn was trying to provide us with funds from time to time, so we were living on like the, you know, five dollars a day. Lead guitarist Wally Wilkinson. And after a while, uh, not in your own space and living with other people, no place to rehearse. It was it was tedious to start with. We were invited to do these shows at the Horton Pavilion. We found out that we'd been booked as New Zealand's raunchiest rock group. <laughs> it was just awfully wrong. And we supported, played with bands like Buffalo, who we were just heavy metal, and, and the crowd, the audience was were heavy as well, and they just hated us. We just, just didn't work. The only way we, we basically got through it was to turn everything up full to distortion and just play like there was no tomorrow and not worry. we played there were a few people who, were, who liked the band and so that kept us going and in a relatively short time we had played at a hotel in Coogee and the band Skyhawks came to see us. They suggested to Mike Gadinsky who was their record company, Mushroom Records, uh, that we were a good band. Stranger than fiction, larger than life. Full of shades and echoes. Michael Gadinsky. Both the guitar players of Skyhooks mentioned a pretty zany 
crazy, weird, artistic, theatrical band from New Zealand and uh, I immediately pricked my ears up and we went and saw them down at the Coogee Bay Hotel and uh, from there um, I guess I pursued them pretty hard and was very, very keen to uh, get involved with them. You know, I was just convinced that they had something, you know, very, very special and at the time, you know, it still applies, I guess, you know, you've got to be a leader, not a follower and it just... In fact, they were a bit much for some people in the early days and a, a lot of fans really didn't understand them and got quite aggressive towards them, but um, I find that um, any sort of reaction is better than just, you know, oh, they're nice. At nights I've heard her screaming through the candle flame Our first trip to Melbourne, we were supposed to be playing with Skyhooks and ACDC. So we drove down. Singer and songwriter Tim Finn. But driving to Melbourne was 13 hours and it was a staggeringly long journey for all of us. And um, we got there about, I don't know, 8 or 9 in the morning or something. Went straight to bed, hadn't slept all night. And then we got a tour manager, which would have been Dave, hammering on our door at 11 o'clock because the gig was at midday. And we thought it was a night time gig. I hate to do this to you boys, but yeah. it's a busy day today, so we have to get you up. So we had to get down there and get into our costumes and, you know, get on stage in a much shorter time than we would have we would have liked. And there was 5,000 kids, and they were there for Skyhooks and they were there for ACDC. They certainly weren't there for us, and they booed us off. It was horrendous, you know, it was a nightmarish kind of introduction. But it soon came right. Once we were on Michael Gudinski's wing, then we had contact, and booking agency and so on, and our first real break, where we actually played to an audience that might like us, and that was when we supported Roxy Music. Roxy Music's guitarist, Phil Manzanera. Arriving in Sydney, very tired after a long flight in 1975, collapse on the bed, turn on the television, the first thing I see is split ends. I just couldn't believe my eyes. So I thought, what's this? They still got little hairdos, all the... So anyway, find out they're the support act for Roxy. All the Roxy Music were watching us from the side of the stage. So here we were <laughs> playing in the, to this big audience who basically appreciated what we are doing. As did Roxy Music, as did Phil Manzanera, and Phil Manzanera was interested in producing our album, but it, timing wasn't right, so he couldn't be there for our recording of the first album, which was Mental Notes. So we just went in and did it basically ourselves. Tour manager and producer of Mental Notes, Dave Russell. So as a musician myself, and having done quite a bit of recording, I was sort of just, it was just another chore for me to be the so-called producer. But basically what happened was the band just went in and recorded the live set and I made sure that everything sort of got done and things flowed and made sure we got everything done in time and didn't blow out Gudinski's budget. <laughs> Just being in a big studio for me was very exciting and I remember I had eight mics on the drum kit, most mics I've ever seen around my drum kit, and we started recording. We just played the stuff as if we were playing it live and Tim would do his guide vocal and off we went.
songwriter, guitarist and singer Phil Judd. I'm amazed now. I've only heard um, mental notes maybe once in the last 20 years. And I remember the night that I did, I was quite blown away by the, a lot of the time changes and the arrangements. Um, I don't think there was one song that just sort of started and stopped in the same groove. Whether that kind of guys that would be bored after 30 seconds in a song and go, oh, we better do something interesting here. And off we'd go on some 3-4 tangent, you know, just odd. They said you were bright Had stars in your eyes They said you were bright Had all the ideas in your head A lot of frustration in all those early lyrics, I think, about being young and frustrated and pissed off about things that you really shouldn't be, I think. Pretty angst-ridden. I think all the songs would have been inspired by what I was reading at the time and Under the Wheels, very Herman Hesse. Under the wheel For all those years Under the wheel For all those tears Wally Wilkinson. Under the Wheel, for me, was, uh, was great because we needed a lot of ambience in it. So I played layers of cellos you know, on guitar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That sitting behind Phil's fairly depraved voice just seemed to work really well for me. It cut through, and when I still hear it today, it kind of sends shivers down my spine. I think, ooh, yeah, I can remember all those parts. But death, glorious. Death is just another bed to sleep. Yes, death, glorious death, is just another appointment to take. Phil was very insecure about his voice. We did our best, I think, to encourage him and bring, bring it out in him. Yeah, Tim had confidence crises all through it. I think I was more confident than Tim at that time. Tim sort of really got wrung out during the whole thing. I guess just the, the whole onus of trying to come up with something magic, putting it down on vinyl, what we thought was there. But um, you know, when it comes to the crunch and you're in the studio and this is it, boys, you know, show us your goods. It's tough for any band and singer, of course. It was Phil's song, Time for a Change, and it was quite awkward because he was in the control room and I was trying to sing it and he was saying things like, come on, you know, remember how we felt when this first came along, remember those days, you know, and he was trying to, really doing his best to kind of, uh, but actually just making me more and more nervous. He was so angst-ridden about making sure it was going to be the great definitive statement. Bass player Mike Chun on Tim Finn. And his psychology affects everybody. Yeah, because he would do take after take after take, and a singer should never really judge their own takes. Solo in Time for a Change, I copied directly from Miles Golding, the violinist, and he had played the solo, and I heard it when I first joined the band, and I said to Tim, well, it's just great. You know, I'm not going to play anything different, I'm going to play that. So I just essentially converted the violin solo to a guitar solo, and I knew exactly what sound I was looking for, and I didn't get it. <laughs> Thank you. 
Ah, oh, this time. Red light's on, we're away. Okay, spellbound. Spellbound, take three. Countersman Molly. That's too slow, isn't it? Lane speed up as much as time. Chances are one, two, one. It's the beginning of the synthesizer era. And of course Eddie was um, innovative enough and clever enough to get his head into that. Uh, hang on a sec. The recording process for us was quite mysterious. I mean, we didn't really understand how to achieve what we wanted to achieve. And so a lot, lot of that was left up to the producer, Dave Russell, and to the engineer whose name escapes me. There was the band and, and then there was him and me sitting behind the glass and the band didn't necessarily hear what was actually going on behind the glass. <laughs> I remember arriving at the studio once and there was a sign on the door saying, gone fishing, back tomorrow. <laughs> he wasn't too thrilled about their music or what he was doing. And it was just very, very tough to actually even get anything done at all. So we we're quite lucky that we got what we did, I think. some great ideas, great arrangemental ideas and melodic ideas, but he just, um, he grappled with guitar sounds. I remember Wally being in the studio and standing there with his headphones on, I got this picture of him in my head, standing there with sweat pouring down his face. And in the studio, his amp was so loud, it was just so thunderous, and then going into the control room and hearing this coming out of the speakers, this tiny wee sort of little pathetic rubber band sound, like twing, twing, twing. <laughs> and here he was standing there kind of like doing this big guitar hero thing in the actual studio. I had huge hope for Maybe. I thought that was going to be a major single. And, I, and we went to the studio and we recorded it. And my idea was I was thinking something like I Am the Wall Rush by the Beatles. And a real. Dun, dun, da, dun, 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 dun. And they said, no, no, play it a bit faster. So we. Dun, dun, dun. I wrote it at the um, Squire Inn. I wrote the music. Yeah, it was one of those piano tracks I used to love playing with eights on the piano. And, and I think I was aware too that we needed a single and everything else was kind of long and disjointed. So I wrote that for the music and I gave it to Phil to write some lyrics for it. And I wish in a way we'd done more of that because it, it really works well.
Phil's a great lyricist. And I love the way it's, it sings about the future, you know. When the day breaks in our stately home, we'll sit, remembering the nights before our hearts were set, which is the fantasy of the rock star and his mansion. And Phil has always had a nice way of being cynical about that as well as yearning for it. It was a good moment for the band and we recorded it really well. That's one of the best things on the, on the record. Great little piece in it was, uh, you know, maybe you'll come along, da 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 da, da. so it's a little 3 8 bar. It's very catchy, very catchy little tune, but um, that little timing problem in the chorus was pretty much the death knell for that song. In fact, you couldn't clap along with it, you couldn't dance to it. Mike Chun had his own problems. I was struggling a bit with agoraphobia, and that kind of impacted in terms of I didn't like being in the studio a lot. So I would sometimes leave the studio in Piermont and then walk to Bondi. Now, how far is that? 15 kilometres or something? So I was struggling with that internally, but externally, yeah, I felt we were making a great record. We had a night sitting around Barry Cabin's home here in Auckland to listen to the mixes. I think everybody had reservations at times about what they were hearing. Whilst Metal Notes has a lot of charm and it, it will always be a very, you know, a unique piece of work, it massively disappointed us at the time. For the songwriter and the musician, records are never going to be as satisfying as a great gig. They're just not. Phil Judd painted the Mental Notes cover art, which was based on discarded photographs he'd raided from photo processing bins. That was the highlight of my life in those days, and I would absolutely load up the car with their rubbish, uh, bags and bags and bags of it, bring it all home, and I would spend days going through it, finding all these amazing photographs. I had a huge collection of them. I had the world's best collection of brown eyes you've ever seen. <laughs> I beg your pardon. Look at my girl, what a lass, bit of all right. First class. The uh, Mental Notes cover basically was a compilation of some of those shots that they would throw out. We went into a photo studio, the photographer dropped a lamp on it and created the crack and I was totally distraught. It wasn't that tragic, but that's how fluffy we were in those days. <laughs> The next day I thought, well, this is obvious what to do, you know, it's cracked, so painted in the cracks here because it was on hardboard, not canvas. Of course now, today, you could just get the old Photoshop out and give her a blat. <laughs> How times change. While in Australia, most of the inns decided to go by their middle names. Names like Emlyn sounded more stagey. It's an arrangement which remains today for Brian Tim Finn, Tony Eddie Rayner, Paul Wally Wilkinson and Jeffrey Noel Crombie. Mental notes. Debut. Whoops, do it again. <laughs> Gotta get this right, Noel. Noel was great to do interviews with. They just both get really stoned and sort of waffle on. Noel, Noel always likes a good chat, you know, a cup of tea and a joint and he's away. Okay, split ends, debut, long player. Yes. We'll do it together. Split ends. have to count. Oh, oh. <laughs> this is shocking. No, you decide on your own. All right. Spittin's debut long player. After a few months confronting the Aussie rock scene, Spittin's welcomed the opportunity to briefly return to New Zealand for a theatre tour. Revisiting the vaudeville elements of the old Buckerhead days brought a new spark to the band. They wore a new set of crombie-designed black-and-white costumes, wildly teased hair in all manner of shapes and large quantities of makeup. Reviews on the whole were more than favourable, and the theatres were full. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Night entertainment, 
featuring split ends will be in two halves with a refreshment break of 15 minutes before the second act. At half time, everyone went off and got an ice cream, and we rushed out with old buckets of sand and poured it all over the stage. Eddie Rayner. The beach scene opened with Phil Judd lying in a deck chair with the hanky, I think, on his head. The whole stage had sand and toy toy, people lying around on towels with intense orange lights. Judgey would start singing his song called Prophecy. Now show me a battle for you, and I'll show you my problems. And show me how you feel, and I'll And he'd be singing this incredibly intense song, and then you'd hear doing, doing. Listen, please listen, for heaven's sake. We had a trampoline out on the wings, and we came flying onto the stage. And it was quite a good entrance for the band. <laughs> I don't know why we did it, but we did. I mean, Split Ends was like, it's just like a fountain of ideas. You know, not just visually, but musically as well. We'd just go for the jugular and just do it. You know, be as extreme as possible. Do you think if you hadn't gone over to Australia, your reception in New Zealand on the tour you're on now, if that had gone ahead, would it have been the same? I'm not sure. I don't think the audiences would have been as large. I think a lot of people are coming along because they've heard that we're doing well elsewhere, and New Zealanders are always very proud when somebody, you know, makes it anywhere else. I think we're getting larger audiences because of that, but I think the reception would have stayed, you know, fairly enthusiastic. Well, hopefully it would have. What they told us that we could play tonight, I said nonsense. Stuff and nonsense, fiddly dee, fiddle battle, applesauce, dutch, bologna, raspberries, poo-poo, poo-poo, fish, mash, marsh, oh, barbosh, balderdash, pooey, hopping, popping, hooray, let's twat and come off my eye, you kill me. Well, they nearly did. For a long time there, Tim couldn't open his eyes, playing live, and he couldn't talk in his natural voice. He'd always have to recite those rhyming verses and with a slight Irish accent, so... It took a long time for him to actually go, you know, I'm me and this is what I'm going to present. Whereas for a long time it was sort of hidden behind some sort of created persona, I think, which didn't work at, at first. John is a stodgy old wind, it is a glad season of life. A time of singing of birds, a time of celebration for the new-fledged, the callow, the unripe, the not quite dry behind the ears, beardless, flapperish, vernal, unlicked. Newborn and Amy Darling talking of springtime. Yeah, I was developing some sort of sense of being on stage and things to say, and you know, I was always aware of gaps between songs and just trying to keep the the flow going. His confidence built. I I don't envy him. You know, I know what it's like being a front man, and I could never talk in front of an audience. Never have been able to. Um, so you know, he gets ten points there. Following their current tour of New Zealand, Split Ends return to Australia for a further tour. We get back on the 15th and we uh, do a nationwide tour with Lou Reed, which should last for probably about two weeks. But we're doing Sydney, Melbourne, Adelaide and Brisbane. The only place we don't go to is Perth. And then we do a, a country tour with Skyhooks, which covers all the smaller centres. We'll go up the coast and we'll sort of, within about five or six weeks, we should have covered a lot of Australia except Perth. Um, which is great, you know, and the TV over there is, is just as powerful a medium as it is anywhere, of course, and we've already appeared on a couple of the nationwide programs and we'll be doing more of those when we get back. So hopefully with the help of all this, the album will take off. The whole rock and roll industry in Australia was so much more organised compared to what we had back home. So all of a sudden we were signed to an agency who said, oh, right, well, next week on Monday you're in Goldburn and on Tuesday you're at Wagga Wagga and on it went, so... Five, six nights a week we'd be on a stage somewhere. Uh, so we'd, have, we'd get kind of a gig sheet. You know, you've got to be in Adelaide or you've got to be here and we'd all hop into the into the Holdens and away we'd go flat out. You know. Brisbane to Adelaide's the hard one. That's a long one. You just put the pedal to the metal and you sit on 160 all the way. <laughs> you just don't stop and it's pretty much straight the whole way. It's amazing we didn't have any accidents. <laughs> 
we were driving back from Sydney to Melbourne and we'd finished the show and we decided to drive back after the show. So you can imagine we had our white shirts on, really thin ties. We still had most of our Max Factor white makeup on, the hair's all sticking up all over the place. <laughs> and we're out of Sydney and the police pull us over. And they must have thought, here it is, the greatest drug haul out ever. These guys can't be real. And I wonder what they ever thought afterwards, but they ever really worked out who we were or what we were. Things are going to change Chances are Things will all stay the same Yeah, we sort of found our audience through playing like the Bondo Lifesaver in Sydney on a Sunday night or university shows in Melbourne or the Reefer Cabaret. There was various shows where it was very alternative kind of audiences and everybody was pretty out of it. And, <clears throat> you know, the rock journalists were bored with rock and roll and looking for something different and along we came, you know, and people who liked Roxy Music and David Bowie were sort of, would get straight into the ends. No, no, we're changing it. Start with something like Summer Breeze. <laughs> <laughs> then I think we'll do uh, Purple Haze. And uh, actually for a finale tonight, I thought it'd be um, quite good to do... Um, Jumping Jack. Big Wheels Keep On to mm. what's that song for? Oh, Mary. Mary. Mm. Just something to get the crowd really going. Yeah, yeah, get into music, eh? We've got bookings right up. Till we go back to Melbourne, which is about another three weeks or so. Canberra's booked fully. Adelaide's booked fully. Uh, and we, and we, hang on, we've we got a few gigs in Melbourne. Go, 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 go. Two sets of one, do you mind either way? Yeah. Walking down in full, in full sort of costume, you know, to go across the live stage and all these sort of super straight rugby players walking up the stairs. Hey, you guys. Yeah. Puff, puff, puff. <laughs> That's a stairwell, stairwell crescendo. <laughs> there was a time not long ago when monks were men and music slow. The fool did well to hold his tongue. But the wise man listened. That's no sound. Talking in my sleep to pawns and queens. I've spoken words, you know, they just don't mean the same thing. As somebody must be, I couldn't mean. As somebody must be, I lying to me. Oh, please don't tell me which is red and which is black. Oh, when are you coming back to me, babe? Oh, when are you coming back to me, babe? I saw myself in Jack and Lance. I even dreamt I was the knight in command. The bishop screamed. The stress of touring such long distances began to take its toll. Eddie Rayner felt increasingly run down and developed quinsy, advanced tonsillitis. My whole neck sort of swelled till it became bigger than my head. <laughs> and I was, basically I was pretty much infected. I just collapsed on stage and uh, woke up in hospital in Adelaide and uh, I was there for about a week. They were going to operate, but um, I didn't have the money to pay for it. 
Tour manager Dave Russell returned to New Zealand for a break, only to be replaced entirely by Skyhook's tour manager John Hopkins. And there were changes afoot within the band as well, as relations between the musicians became strained. Well, there was loggerheads um, between Wally and Tim. Tim was always frustrated by Wally's sound. Tim was difficult to work with for me on stage because I couldn't read him as easily as you'd like to. You know, he might turn around and throw his hands up and you'd wonder, what's that for? Is that a signal or is that just dancing or is that just whatever else? Why was Wally fired? Sad. I think when it got to about October 75, Mental Notes hadn't really done anything. You know, not like we dreamed it would. And the single, maybe, radio hadn't touched it, no one had bought it. You know, and so there's this frustration building up. Where's it going? Where's it going to go? Da 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 da. da. And the Spitting's way, in hindsight, is to sort of scapegoat somebody. And why was Wally chosen to go? Probably, essentially, I think Phil was getting stronger on guitar, and it was getting a little bit clashy to try and have two guitars playing in in what was already quite a layered piece of music. Plus there was a sort of feeling, maybe a bit of brass, give it more colour. So if Bob Gillies came back, you know, Wally would have to go. Things need to change. And so Wally was actually fired by John Hopkins. None of us had the balls to go around and tell him. For me, absolutely shattering experience. Absolutely shattering at the time. And I guess what, what was what was hard for me is that I was told by the manager and not by any of the members who I'd gone to school with and befriended and, you know, had them playing in different bands with me and all that kind of thing. I found that a bit poorly handled, to be honest. But then we're all pretty young at that stage too, so <laughs> you don't have a lot of wisdom behind you at that stage. So, But that was it. Within just a few days of Wally's departure, Robert Gillies was back on stage with Split Ends. Bob is an old buddy, so there he was coming back blowing his saxophone. The first song we played with him in Australia at the end of 75, he ran around the stage, took off around the stage. I thought, oh yeah, he knows what we're worrying about. And he was back in and it felt good. Slowly but surely the crowds built up. So that by the you know the end of 1975 we could get oh, 1,500 people into a hall in Melbourne. Pretty much sold out crowds. Tim Finn, speaking in 1975. People seem to expect that uh, we should be the same offstage as we are on to a certain extent and they quite often react with uh, sort of almost childish disappointment when we're not. Uh, the odd, the very odd, very rare appearances we make at parties always have at least perhaps half a dozen more extroverted people come up to us and, and, and they usually begin by enthusing over the band, which is always a little embarrassing, and saying how marvellous we are and how much they've enjoyed the act. And then they, they sit back and give the impression that they want to soak up everything that we are and everything that we do, just like they did when they were in the audience. Mm-hmm. They, they expect us to be that sort of cockeyed, screwy, slightly... N- slightly nutty, wacky, spoony, daffy, loony, batty person that they saw on stage. Or perhaps in the case of, say, someone like Philip, they expect the mystery and the shadows. With me, they expect the the laughter and the gaiety, although I don't laugh much on stage, but I think people find me to be, um, well, a fool, a twit. And uh, we're we're not, you see, because uh, basically we're we're middle-class... very, uh, well, intelligent young men. By the end of 1975, Phil Judd had left the band, again, only to be coaxed back a few days later by Tim. 
Money was tight, and Phil was getting more and more morose on stage, often leaving his vocal duties to Tim. And they were no longer writing together. Phil Judd. Uh, for me, that whole period, um, personally, was just very frustrating because I had a wife and a young kid with no money back home and that's all I thought about, was missing them and trying to keep money going to them because we, no, we weren't paid much. There were pressures on him that I, I wouldn't have possibly been able to relate to at all. I had no idea really what he was going through. Tim Finn. But the relationship was changing anyway and I, I think with most songwriting partnerships, they often burn out really quickly you know the, the true essence of the, when you're actually writing together quite often I think only lasts a couple of years or a short time and then you might continue to affect each other's work and edit it and change it a bit but it's not true writing together yeah to me I always look back and I go how sad you know that um, the touring and playing live thing takes over and the whole structure of two people who can click like that together just gets torn apart by that you, you just get lazy with getting together and and because um, when you're living together as mates uh, over a glass of red and get the acoustics out magic happens but um, then suddenly you're spending weeks away on the road and people are frustrated or angry or something or other and um, nothing happens and the magic stopped basically uh, that was the beginning of the drifting apart for Tim and me Tim was just by that stage totally focused on the band was going to do it, was going to be successful. And I can admit that I, I didn't have that drive, I think, that Tim's always had. then because I started taking tranquilizers, right so I would take the morning night morning night to make sure I didn't have a panic attack I did have a bit of a panic attack once I had to run away from a rehearsal one too many rusty nails pinning me to the floor can't stand up will some make up before it's too late that song and Rob came over to the place we were living in in Elwood and, uh, in Melbourne and worked out this complex brass arrangement and I worked out a vocal arrangement and it was a very complex and yet you know that, that one stands up pretty well for me over the years. Robert Gillies. I got to overlay multiple tracks on the trumpet and saxophone so I got to be my own brass band finally. <laughs>
Good evening, Invercargill. Into the Earth Tour was fantastic. Good evening, Dunedin. We developed musically. Good evening, Wellington. But we were still doing some strange stuff in a way. Good evening, Auckland. Would you welcome warmly the seven in heaven who play a number of songs, some short, some long, full of madness, music and mirth, which blend we find only in the ends of the earth. In 1976, plans were underway for split ends to try their fortunes in London. The Ends of the Earth tour of New Zealand and Australia was a series of farewell shows which, again, meant pulling out all the stops. Robert Gillies. We devised a opening which was a big bag that we all got onto, and it had a big bow around it. Then the bow was undone and we'd all tumble out, a bit like, you know, naked woman out of a cake. Loved it. I loved that sort of stuff. It was almost on a par with playing. Right, we're all getting into the bag, right, oh, he farted in the bag, that whole schoolboy thing. It's like you never left school, being in split ends, except you didn't get told what to do quite so much. <laughs> In Auckland, we played at the town hall and sold out two nights. And that was like an endorsement to be able to come back to your hometown, if you like, and sell out the biggest room. You know, that was a thing come full circle. Now, thank you all, and it is time to say goodnight. So, from Noel Crombie and Philip Judd, Emran Crowler, Robert Bruce Gillies, Jonathan Chung, Eddie Rayner, and myself, Tim, full of them to the prim and nimble at that. Goodbye. Bye-bye. Be good. Come again. Keep in touch. Until we meet again, good luck to you all. See ya. And so long.